0: That is one of the favorite, my favorite videos that our tech team has ever done. That was excellent, and I want to thank uh, the team for their work on that. And it highlights beautifully what uh, it highlights beautifully what we're going to be talking about and what we've been talking about here in Romans 9. And you're going to find out a little more about that as we get going here. I do want to uh, welcome our campuses joining us here today. Happy All About Him Sunday to you. I also want to uh, just uh, tell you last Sunday, we we had our first ever Deeper event, and it was a uh, special night going uh, deeper on the subjects of predestination and election. Well, we had 500 people that came to that event, and uh, I was so encouraged by that. So I just wanna say stay tuned for future events uh, like that where we can dig deeper in uh, biblical matters cultural matters uh, Christian worldview and uh, we want it to be a regular part of uh, of Bethelonians who want to go deeper all about him Sunday the 23rd annual all about him Sunday I uh, uh, it was mentioned earlier that if you're a guest here and you um, Maybe you're like, okay, what's this about, and who's him, and... <laughs> well, you've happened in on a Sunday that... These started by accident. It's the honest truth. Uh, we, my first sermon here years ago, I did a sermon on the supremacy of Christ in all things. And the next year I thought, you know, I should speak on that again, and I did from a different uh, passage. And then anytime you do something twice in a row in a church, now it's a tradition. And so it kind of became a thing that we just did every year, year after year after year after year. And it's hard to believe all these years now. Why does it matter to us? And the reason it matters to us is that we look in the Bible and we see that it matters to God. That, the, that God cares that the church of Jesus Christ is the church of Jesus Christ, not of anybody else, not of my personal preferences, opinions, not of some other sort of thing, but about Christ. And so over the years, we have preached on this from all kinds of different angles, and it's been a delight to do so. And it's been a wonderful, I think, life-giving uh safeguard in our church because the danger in church is always to is to emphasize the wrong thing and there's so many good things that that we can talk about and do and all of that but if we if we take a minor thing we make it the main thing now the church starts you know uh, skewing in the wrong direction and so a church that is intentionally as best we can imperfectly i might say but as best we can trying to center its purposes on the purposes that God the Father has, which is to magnify the glory of the Son, we, we are on good, safe, doctrinal uh, ground. And it helps us to emphasize the most important thing, to keep the main thing the main thing. And that is what we're doing yet again this year. This year is slightly different, though, than other years, and Romans 9 is uh, calling us to a slight change in the sense that typically all about him, the hymn is very specifically second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We firmly believe that, and that's all true. But Romans 9 is not so much about singularly the supremacy of Christ or the glory of Christ as it is about the glory of God triunally, trinitarianally, that's a word, uh, And so our passage today is going to be more about the glory of God and that it is all about the glory of God. And so the title is Unveiling All His Glory. And I'm going to read this here in just a moment. I want to cue up to our brains, though, what we have been seeing in Romans 9 so far. And uh, this this chapter, I mean, other than Hebrews 6, maybe the hardest chapter in all of the Bible and the text that we have before us. Along with last week's probably hardest passage in Romans 9. Perfect for all about him. (laughs) That's what we're doing. Uh, So we're not ducking it. I think it actually fits wonderfully. But what we have seen is that Paul is making the argument that God has always exercised a particular grace. That Abraham gave birth to Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael was not the son of promise. Isaac had uh, twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau was not the son of promise. Jacob was the son of promise. And so uh, we find then in this, the argument that he makes in verse 16 is that this is done to show that salvation doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And he addresses in verse 14, the number one complaint people have when they hear that salvation is of God, they say, wait a second, that's not fair that's not fair what is his answer to that that sinners as sinners we actually don't want fair you might say i want fair no you don't no you don't because fair is all of us in hell sinners do not want god just to be fair sinners desperately want god to exercise mercy and that's what paul says is that salvation is not a justice issue it is an it's a mercy issue it's the grace of god issue Fair is humanity in hell, mercy is some saved to heaven. And so now what Paul does is he addresses the second question that he heard as he taught on this, that whenever we talk about this, this is what comes to our mind. And I will say this to you, this is a passage that if properly understood we would only talk about with tears in our eyes, and I stand here before you, I'm not gonna try to summon tears, but there is definitely a weightiness in my heart about what this says, Uh, and there is a, there are things here that are very difficult tensions to understand in the heart and the mind of God, and we approach this humbly, This is a huge section with lots of mysteries and things that we can't understand, but there are things that we can understand, and those things are wonderful, and that's what I want to focus on today. So verse 19, let me read the text. Romans 9, here we go. "'You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God?' "...will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction?" in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. May God bless his word to us today. What does Paul address? The same thing, if we get thinking about this, that we oftentimes wonder about. If God is sovereign, then why are we to blame? If God is the one that's doing this, why are we to blame? Now, I would just want to say the fact that this is the question that Paul addresses indicates that what Paul is actually teaching about election is what we're saying that he's teaching about election. Otherwise, why address this objection to what he is teaching? God is sovereign over salvation. If, if you get up and you say in front of people, God is completely sovereign over salvation, what are the two things that people are going to say in objection? That's not fair, and why are we to blame? Which is precisely the two objections that he addresses. And in addressing them, he could have said, now, by the way, I just want to make something clear. Every, this is all about everyone's personal choice. That choice is a choice that is made free from any interference from God. God is sovereign over everything except the decisions of human beings. And if he would have said something like that, we would have all be interpreting Romans 9 in a different way. But instead, he raises the objection and then he doubles down on it and says, this is actually what I am saying. God is sovereign over salvation. So I wonder if you get the question, okay? So do you understand the question? If God chose Jacob and not Esau, and Esau ends up in judgment forever, shouldn't Esau and Ishmael and Pharaoh have a right to accuse God and say, if you are sovereign, why are we to blame? For who can resist your will? Sensible objection, don't you think? And it's one that many of us no doubt have as we think about these deeper things, Now, I want to make it clear one thing that he is not saying in this. He is not saying that if I want to become a Christian, and if I repent of my sins, and if I trust in Jesus, but I wasn't chosen by God, then I am judged forever in hell. I can't be saved. That is not what he is saying. Why do we know that? Because this is not the only verse in the Bible, okay? Have you noticed there's a lot of verses in the Bible? And there are many, 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 many verses that make it clear. For example, that whosoever will may come. What did Jesus say? Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. And verses like this, and you look in Acts, and the apostles, they go out preaching the gospel. And they never preach the gospel in a, in a like a, uh, they never qualify the offer. They never have sort of, now as you think about whether or not you want to receive Christ, there's another layer here that you need to sort of worry about because even if you want to accept Christ, if, you don't, if you're not elect, then too bad for you. They don't say that. They just offer Jesus to all who will believe. So Romans 9 isn't about people who want to be saved and can't because God didn't elect them, and the reason is there is no such thing as somebody like that. This is about causality. This is about mercy. It is explaining, essentially, how Esau's become Jacob's, how Pharaoh's become Moses, how Ishmael's uh, become Isaac's. And the answer to that is the mercy of God. The mercy of God as the underlying ultimate cause for why I would ever want to trust and believe in Jesus in the first place. The point here is that without God's intervening grace, our hearts, like Pharaoh, are hard against the gospel. How do they become unhard? How does somebody come to a place where they're like, you know what, I'm going to bow the knee to Jesus as the Lord of my life and trust in him as my Savior. How do I ever come to that point? Why would I ever, my hard heart, spiritually dead heart, ever do that? The grace of God, the mercy of God, as the underlying causality in what creates faith in my heart, God intervenes. We cannot do it without him. So, with that sort of breadth of Scripture answer, note that what Paul is saying here in Romans 9, 19 is this, that he is swimming even deeper than uh, how we are saved to why we are saved. And that's an important thing to understand. This isn't about so much how we are saved, the rest of Romans takes care of that, but why we are saved. Why does God show mercy to rebellious sinners like us? In this passage here, it's a toughie, okay? It is a toughie but it's probably the clearest statement in the Bible as to why some are saved and why some are not saved. So what do we see first of all? First thing we see is this. He says, here's his response to the objection. God is God and you're not. That's what he says. God is God, you're not. Anybody disagree with that statement here? Let us know, we'll bow and worship later. Uh, but I'm assuming that we all acknowledge there's no gods here amongst us, that God is God, we are not. Notice what he says. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now this is a dissatisfying answer in some ways because we were like Paul to, hey man, you're the logical guy. Give us the logical theological answer to the question. And he doesn't do that. Rather, he takes issue with the assumption that we have a right to even ask the question in the first place. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Who are you, O creature of dust, to suppose that you can rise to a level of moral judgment and place God in the courtroom of righteousness and stand over him as judge and question his goodness. Who do you think you are? That's his answer. You know, our legal system has a similar sort of argument, and it's known as legal standing, okay? Anybody can sue anybody. Maybe you've noticed that. Maybe you've you got lawsuits going on right now. You're like, right? uh, right? Anybody can sue anybody, but in order for that, that civil suit to go through in some measure, it has to be established that you have legal standing. You have a right to feel wronged. You have a right to make this accusation. If you don't have legal standing, the case is thrown out. And this keeps frivolous cases from being made by everybody against everybody. And this is where Paul goes in, in his argument. He doesn't go with the theological answer. He doesn't go with the philosophical answer. But whether sinful creatures have any standing or right to judge God in what he does. Is it somewhat presumptuous for us to suppose that we can accuse the most high God with sin? I've got two girls, six and four. In the stage of life that we are in, we get peppered with a question, same question, over and over, over and over. It's a one-word question all day long. Why? Why this? Why that, Daddy? Why this, Mama? Why not this, Daddy? Why not this, Mama? Why, why, why? And so Jennifer and I have reluctantly fallen back on the answer that parents have given for centuries to this question? We can all say it together probably, can't we? Because. Not even the I said so, it's just because. <laughs> the parents are laughing here, right? Because. What is what is that saying when you say Because, it's saying many things. Mommy's tired, I don't want to answer the question. We're so tired of you asking these questions. But in reality, what we are saying is I could explain this to you. I have rational, financial, legal, (laughs) educational, theological, biblical reasons for why I have directed you to do this, but it would go over your head. And so the answer for you is because. And that needs to be good enough. Listen to how this whole section in Romans 9 through 11, how it ends. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Should we be surprised that in the inscrutable, infinite mind of God, who purposes the incredible salvation of rebellious sinners, transforming them into forgiven, righteous, adopted children in his family, That there would be things in that where God says, because. And there are reasons, but you're not up to understanding. You can't handle the truth, essentially. You can't handle it. It would blow your mind. So I can't completely understand, personally, how God is sovereign. And how we are morally responsible for the decisions and directions of our life. In the end, I can't totally reconcile those. The Bible says both are true. So there's a mystery. I can't reconcile a holy, sovereign God purposing all things, yet somehow not being personally responsible for evil. I can't reconcile that. I can't reconcile one thief next to Jesus going to paradise and the other thief next to Jesus going to hell. I can't reconcile, fair. Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Moses, Pharaoh, and perhaps you under grace and not somebody sitting near you. I can't reconcile that. We want to know the inscrutable we want to understand the unsearchable but paul says here sinners don't have standing who are you made of dust earthling to presume that you have standing to place god in the seat of the accused and to call into question his goodness and to accuse him of wrongdoing who do you think you are So how does he illustrate this? Well, he illustrates this with the familiar aspect of first century life. Pottery. A potter and his clay. Now as I say pottery, we don't live in a pottery world so much, do we, anymore? Uh, In fact, you can go to a store called Pottery Barn and there is no pottery there. (laughs) They have drapery home decor, and lots of incredibly bored husbands. That's what you find in Pottery Barn. So we don't really live in a pottery world. But in the first century, pottery was everything. Pottery was was everywhere all the time, potters and clay. And so this illustration would totally connect. He says in verse 20, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now what is Paul doing here? He's imagining the impossible. Because it is impossible for clay to talk. And clay is never going to talk to its potter. But he, he imagines here now that clay can talk. And so the clay says to the potter, why have you made me like this cup, vase, cistern, whatever? Okay? Why have you made me this item that I am? The point is, clay doesn't talk, and clay shouldn't presume it has a right, even if it could, to say to the potter, who are you to make me the way that I am? Now, Paul here is not saying that we are clay, and all analogies break down. Here's what he's saying it is the irrational and irreverent place for clay to accuse the potter of wrongdoing. That's his point. It's the potter's right to make out of the clay whatever he chooses to make fine pottery and some for dishonorable use. He's the potter, we're the clay. He's God, we are not. Now, if I stopped right there, I mean, that's an answer, but I think it's kind of a dissatisfying one in isolation. And what Paul does now, and I'm so thankful that he did, is that he ventures into the why. Why? Why would God choose to save some and not others? And I'm here to tell you, no matter where you are on that debate, this is a very hard question for every position and every perspective. Because in the end, obviously, some are saved and some are not. How you explain that, every position struggles to explain it. But here is Paul's answer to that question. Again, I'll read it. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. I heard a sermon this week that asked this question. What if the God, your nice little evangelical church that you grew up in, if you grew up with Christianity, what if the God that that nice little evangelical church of your past, told you about, isn't the God of the Bible? That is a compelling question because just observationally for me, having been sort of an evangelical Christianity a couple decades now, it seems to me that there are many, many people who their perspective on God is so reductionistic and simplistic to say, who is God? God is love. Now, is that true? Of course it's true. But in their mind, that's all he is. Or to say, God is grace. Is that true? Of course it's true that God is grace. But in their mind, they're they're wanting to see him as being only grace or only love. In America, total pagans will sing amazing grace with the bagpipes. And will stand for God bless America at the seventh inning stretch and sing to God to bless America. And the point is this, that everybody has a perspective on God. Everybody has a sort of this understanding, this view of who God is. And increasingly in our day, we're sort of okay with everybody defining him the way they want to define him. But the question is, is the definition you have in your mind of who God is, the real God of the Bible? And that's where passages like this come along. And the simple reductionistic sort of third grade Sunday school perspective on who God is is unbelievably reductionistic. How so? Here's the challenge. Does your understanding of who God is include His desire to be glorified for all that He is? We say, yes, as long as those attributes that He is glorifying are ones that work out good for us. Then I'm good with that. So therefore we like love, mercy, and grace. God, glorify those all that you want. I'm for it, for it. But then this passage tells us that God is also equally desirous to magnify the glory of his wrath, to magnify the glory of his power, to magnify the glory of his holiness. How do we sinners feel about those? We're not as excited about it, but we are clay, and God is God, and Paul poses a question here which is really a statement of fact, okay? He says this, that God also desires to make known his power and wrath, and by the way, this is not God wanting it to simply be, here's some useful information to you, oh, by the way, you might want to know that I am all-powerful, and that I am really, really angry at unrighteousness and sin and sinners. No, it's not information. It is celebration and worship for those qualities that he has as well. He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And this is where tears should be in our hearts, just to think about this. But vessel keeps the pottery theme going, doesn't it? Okay, so he's continuing that analogy. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Who is that talking about? Well, we answer that by going back to Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Who is he talking about? These are sinners who by their refusal to worship their creator. Are worshiping created things, indeed themselves, and they are living in a state of willful disobedience and unbelief. These are the vessels of wrath, here it says, prepared for destruction. Prepared by who? Now, here's where there's a little debate, because that Greek word there can either mean prepared by somebody else, in which case we would say God, or prepared by themselves and their own willful actions. That's debated. It says here that God endures them with patience. What's that? What's that? Here's what it is. As God, he has the right and could have exercised it the moment Satan rebelled to cast him into hell. Bam, just like that. When Adam and Eve sinned against him, hell. Cain murders Abel, hell. Instant justice. God has that right. But he didn't exercise that right, did he? In fact, Satan's been getting away with it for a very long time. Why? Why would an almighty, all-powerful God allow the ongoing spiritual sins of, the, of, of Satan and the demons and the ongoing sins of sinners and humanity by the billions of people right now, why would God endure that with patience? And here is the answer that our hearts long for in the question, why did God allow evil and Satan and, frankly, even the cross? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels, there's the theme again, of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So you see how these two, they run parallel, don't they? The vessels of wrath and the vessels of grace, the vessels of glory. To make known his wrath and power, God punishes sinners. And to make known the riches of his grace and mercy, God saves sinners. And God is as committed to both of those as a perfect, infinite God can be. Now, we are more naturally excited about the mercy and the grace, and you're like, Pastor Steve, we want more sermons on that. Okay, Romans 1.18, that was tough enough. Here now we have wrath again. Could we sort of minimize the wrath part of God and maximize the love part of God? In other words, can we treat God the way that we treat ourselves? And what does that mean? It means that we, we present ourselves, and we have certain things that we think we're good at, strengths. And we want to magnify those, but then all of us have these things about us that, you know, family members know, we know. We're not posting on social media about those, are we? In fact, I think social media is a great example of what I'm talking about. What do people post on social media? Pictures where they, you know, it's just the right angle where they look as good as they can look. And the body parts that they view as not being as wonderful somehow are cropped out of the picture, right? Those children on the first day of school, so cute, so eager to learn. It's like they're little, all little Aristotles, they're just like wonderful. We don't post pictures of the hissy fit, right? <laughs> and what it took to get them to smile for that photo. In other words, we celebrate me at my best, not my worst. But with God, there is no worst. Think of that with me. There is nothing about God that is anything less than perfect and beautiful. And there is nothing about God that he has any shame about. God is not sort of apologetic about glorifying his wrath we preachers get sort of apologetic about hey sorry I got to say all this all that but God's not that way he is not apologetic about his holiness he doesn't crop that out of the picture no God delights in all that he is and all that he does including the terrifying attributes to us of holiness, power, and justice. So therefore we ask the question, why would God make a pot named Pharaoh? And why would God make a jar named Ishmael? And why would God make a trash bin named Satan? And the answer is to unveil the glory of all that he is. Further, How would vessels of mercy realize they are vessels of mercy if everybody was vessels of mercy? How do you know what mercy is if you don't know what judgment is and punishment is? So what if by waiting and allowing Satan to tempt Adam and Eve and orchestrate Jesus' cross, God's mercy and love are unveiled in ways that would never have been known if there was no Satan? Would that ultimate good justify the enduring with patience all the things that Satan has done if it unveiled for his forever praise the glory of his mercy? Would that be worth it? Or to quote Luther, even the devil is God's devil. You know, back to my daughters a second. Once a year they do something wrong. (laughs) Here's something I've noticed, uh, and I didn't expect this, um, but I've noticed that when when I am disciplining my six-year-old daughter once a year, when I am disciplining her, my four-year-old daughter will very quickly come running up and say, Dada, I love you. (laughs) Dada, I love you. Why does she do that? We haven't taught her to do that. Now, you can say, well, she needs reassurance and all. That's true. But at the root is when she sees daddy's judgment. It causes her to treasure daddy's love. Do you suppose one day, Christian, that you will gaze into the abyss that is hell, that lake of fire? Stare into the expanse, of the expression of the wrath and the holiness of God. And then turn to God and say, I love you, Dada. I love you, Dada. Do you suppose that one purpose for hell is to express the terribleness of his wrath? to make known the glory of his mercy, and to make that even greater to us as we realize what he has mercifully saved us from. Today is Jennifer and I's seventh wedding anniversary. Seven years. Compared to many of you, that's not a major accomplishment, I know, but feels big deal to us. And I'm here to tell you that starting with my engagement ring, being married has meant more time in jewelry stores than the previous expanse of my life combined. <laughs> I have spent a lot of time in jewelry stores, and it's kind of like the Pottery Barn experience, honestly. So I've had a lot of time to look at uh, and, and, and analyze What jewelry stores do, and they pretty much all do the same thing. If you've been in a jewelry store, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You walk in, they always have the the little lights mounted in the ceiling, strategically pointing down onto the display cases. And there in the display cases, they have, you know, all manner of jewels and bedazzling things. And if you uh, drum up the courage and say, uh, I'd like to see this particular item. They will pull it out, and along with pulling it out, they pull out this little display thing that they open up in front of you, and it is always the same color, black velvet, always. And they place that item, let's say it's a diamond. They put that diamond onto the black velvet, and they, you know, they sort of move it around so that the light can sort of make it sparkle, and they begin to note things about that particular diamond. Oh, look at the color of the is so crystal clear and and look at the clarity of the stone and why you know what it appears bigger than that carat rating in my opinion and they you know they they'll hold it up to the light and you see how it re- the light refracts through the diamond and et cetera et cetera you've been there probably you know what I'm talking about all of this set against a dark background. Why? And you know why. Because the contrast between the brightness of the diamond and the darkness of the display highlights the beauty of the stone. Friends, is that particular diamond, is it worth more when it is against the black velvet than it was when it was in the display case? Is it worth more when it's in front of the lights and it's sparkling than it was in the display case? And the answer to that is no, it's worth the same. But what what, what does it do when you bring that black velvet in behind that diamond? It makes it look even more beautiful and even more glorious. And even more valuable and even more worthy. Why is there a hell? Why is there a Satan? Why was there a Pharaoh? Why was there a Judas Iscariot? Why was there a Pilate? Why was there a cross? And one reason, friends, is that mercy never looks more wonderful than against the backdrop of non-mercy. How much does it mean to us that God sovereignly chose to unveil not just his wrath, but his mercy as well? And what would we have done to deserve it? Nothing. That's the thing about mercy nothing we've done nothing it is all the mercy of God we deserved hell and we deserved wrath forever but instead we get heaven we get life we get God what do we say to that oh the depths of the riches of the mercy of God this whole thing is No human glory in it at all. And if you're looking for some salvation that allows you to have a little bit of glory in it, you've come to the wrong place. Christianity is not the place for you. This is a gospel by a God who purposed to unveil all the glory of who he is by seeking and saving the lost. And that's the story of the video we did. What did that girl do? be saved. Nothing. Her contribution to the story is she got lost. That's not a story about an amazing finding of the daughter. It's a story of an amazing dad doing the seeking. And that's where salvation, this is the confusion, it feels to us like, I found God. I found Jesus. I found salvation. But if you want to go deeper, into the mysteries how, of how the infinite God saved you. It's the story of how he found us. He saved us. He did it all, which is yet another way to say it's all about him. Amen.